Welcome to Season 2 of American Political History, The Second Wave, Dissension. While the Bay was positioning itself for a possible military conflict with England, Gorgeous's ships would get sunk when a storm would destroy them during construction. Proof God favored the Commonwealth. But regardless of the threat from England, the Bay had their own internal tumult. As more immigrants had settled within the colony, decreasing amounts of the population could pass the tests and requirements to become church members and therefore freemen to vote and participate in government. The tests had gone so far that basic acceptance would require the applicant to speak in front of the whole congregation and prove how God had made them a saint, a perfect Puritan. Then they would have to receive unanimous agreement from that congregation to be accepted as a new member. The percent of Puritans that qualified to vote had decreased to around 20% of the population. Church membership tended to be left with those who had been most financially successful. The colony was slowly becoming an oligarchy. By 1634, the justices of the peace were expressing discontent with their governor. The Board of Magistrates had voted themselves hundreds of acres of land for time devoted to running the Bay's government. The justices demanded to see the charter itself. This was a world without Google to look up some document. You mostly relied on what others of authority would say. But the lone copy of the charter was there in Boston. When the justices reviewed the charter, they discovered that the charter itself gave the whole general court, that is the justice of the peace, the power of the legislature. It gave the magistrates no powers of legislature. During the upcoming elections, Winthrop was soundly unelected. He would remain a magistrate, and Thomas Dudley was elected as governor. Dudley was known as a hard man. He had attacked Winthrop for his Christian charity. He thought Christian love is that of firm love for the flock. Another issue was raised at that general court. Thomas Hooker had requested to leave the bay and found a new settlement near where Hartford, Connecticut is today. The social power of the religious authorities in the bay was so great, even those that wished to leave had to request their permission. Hooker was arguing that his congregation needed land for cattle raising and farming and that the English needed to claim the region for themselves before the Dutch could make that same claim. The magistrates voted 4-3 against the move, and now a crisis of power arose within the Commonwealth. Winthrop argued for the majority that the magistrates had veto power over legislation and decisions that affect the whole colony. If the general council followed this veto logic, they would be creating a de facto upper house of the legislative body a lower body of justices, and an upper body of magistrates who could veto the lower body. Magistrates already exercised all judicial and executive powers over the colony. This would give them a monopoly on all government powers. The magistrates unanimously agreed that they should have this power, and this created a major rift within the Commonwealth. For Hooker's group, the social pressure of leaving without approval meant that they would remain within the Bay Colony instead. By Hooker's cooperation and capitulation to this tradition, it set the precedent that the magistrates had veto power whether or not it had been outlined in the original colony charter. 
because of this public disruption and fighting over the legislative body between themselves, the general council ordered a day of public humiliation within the colony to make penance for their behavior. Roger Williams was at the time Salem's unofficial church clergyman. He publicly voiced his opposition to this day of humiliation. Williams insisted that magistrates, or really any magistrate, had no authority to enforce the first table of commandments. The first table is that of the first four commandments as arranged by the Church of England. It regulates humans' duty to God, to have no God before him, to make no graven images, to not take the Lord's name in vain, to keep the Sabbath holy. Williams argued that the magistrates are injecting themselves into an individual's relationship with God, that the bay must enforce only the commandments of the second table, those which govern human relations, the commandments that forbid murder, theft, lying, adultery, and covetousness. Williams was arguing for a separation between church and state, but not for the logic we think of today. He argued that the state was a human creation and therefore flawed as humanity is flawed. The state's very presence within the church's realm of spirituality is a corruption of the church's purity. Williams was now attacking both Puritans and English custom. This was a time when the King of England was the head of the English church. Advocating this opinion put him in the crosshairs of the Bay authorities. But Williams had had a long history of rejecting the authority of the Bay. When Williams landed in the Bay, he turned down a position with the clergy in Boston. And for a time, Williams would become a prominent figure in Plymouth instead, where he focused on converting Indians. After all, this had been one of the main reasons claimed for settlement in the New World, if not the main reason to start plantations in America. But Virginia had done little to further that, and in three years the Bay had done nothing to convert a single Indian. Williams saw the Indians in a view that would become known as the Noble Savage. They were simply a lost tribe of Israel. And although Williams sympathized, he did not always view natives in a positive light. He would speak of the natives and their smoke holes, or as them being wolves with men's minds. But it was his mission to help them turn their ways to God. Williams took it upon himself to act. Without the backing of any church institutions, he started traveling amongst several local nations near Plymouth, even inviting them regularly as guests in his home. Williams believed that no one could convert someone until they could explain Christ well enough in their own native language, so he threw himself at learning local native dialects. This interchange of culture brought William to a place of disagreement with his fellow New World planters. He was in alignment with his fellow planters of the shared opinion that God knows no difference between Europe and America in blood, birth, or bodies, God having of one blood that made all mankind. Having this opinion was not unique in that era, but it was one thing to give it lip service and quite another to believe and act upon that truth. Williams pointed out all of the similarities, that socialness of man that can be found even in the most wild of mankind, familiar relations and the cohabitation in towns together, and even in the wildest of mankind, they have thrown themselves into some sort of hierarchical mold or government. It was simply the scientific and philosophical knowledge that made English different. 
Many English writers had reminded the English that they had been savage as those in Virginia not so long ago, and without Christ, they would return to that savage state. Williams would learn and truly attempt to convert the natives to Christianity through dialogue. Which brings me to what I think is one of the funniest things I heard. Once William learned enough of the native dialects to communicate, he would often be asked by the natives if the English had come to the New World to seek fire, because in their observation, the English would settle an area, then use up all the wood for fire before moving on to the next area to create a settlement, and again, use up all the wood for fire. Williams would take his thoughts on the natives a step further. Using his training on English common law of property and inheritance, he reflected on his new knowledge that the local natives use much of the land by burning shrub fires every year. They did this to eliminate competition for nutrients with their crops. This was known as slash-and-burn farming. The English claim for settlement was that the land was unoccupied, but Williams would argue that the natives used the land and therefore they owned the land. With his interchange, he also started to learn that the different native nations were very exacting in who owns what part of what lands and where. They even sold and gave rights or access to those lands to other people. This challenged the English king's right to grant charters or colonial lands in America. Williams took his concern to Plymouth's leaders. They asked him to write a treatise. He did so. Williams took aim at King James' claim to be the first king to claim lands in the New World. He also attacked the claim that England was the rightful holder of Christendom. This claim that the king was in error or perhaps lied was an explosive assertion, even in these dissenting communities. Williams' treatise wouldn't challenge most of the English colonies in their current state since they had made purchasing arrangements with local natives. It threatened the bay and future claims of chartered land that had not yet been purchased from natives. The Puritan leadership in New England took this as an attack on their colony, and the Puritans looked down on any kind of social disturbance as an affront to the Commonwealth. Williams was then summoned by the General Court of Boston, and he returned to face the leadership of the bay. When he returned to Boston, they read his treatise aloud in court and objected to the claim that King James said a lie. Native ownership was not really discussed or even debated. This court did not hold a trial as we think of today. The court had already made up its mind. It was debating the appropriate level of punishment for William's crimes against the Commonwealth. Williams apologized to the court, saying that the treatise was only for the governor of Plymouth's interests. His total willingness to burn any copies of this treatise made the Puritans less distrustful of these writings. Williams had capitulated and escaped punishment this time from the court in Boston. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating. And share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.